Last week, we began to take a look at the fact that it's time to know your church. We're going to be looking at that for a few times. The plan is three, but the plan could change. As you saw last week when I didn't get through the outline, but you had ahead of time part of what we're going to look at this morning. But before we go there, I, I want you to take a moment to imagine. Imagine if you got to design the church. What would it look like? Uh, not so much the building, though if you want to have recliners and massage chairs, okay. Just let me give you a word of advice. Whoever's up here would not enjoy that because there would be the snoring would be so loud you wouldn't hear anything. But just imagine if you got to design the church. What would it look like? And by that I mean the body. Not so much who, but how. What would the people do? What would a gathering for worship look like and sound like? Imagine if you got to design the church. What would change? What would stay the same? What would you go, no way? And what would you go, always? Well, there's a description kind of of that. It's in Acts chapter 2. And I know some of you are already ahead and looking at your outline and going, that's not on the outline. You're right. This is free. But Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42, is kind of a description of one of those imagine if situations for a body of believers. This is after Christ's death and resurrection. This is after he came back and taught and implored and empowered and commissioned those who were following him. Not just the twelve, but all who were following him. This is after what we call the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came in and moved in a mighty way. This is after the building where they were meeting was literally shook. Imagine that. This was after... They began to reach out. This was after 3,000 people decided to follow Christ in one service. This is after a group of 120 or so now multiplied to 3,120, and it was growing every day. Listen to this description. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe, I love that word, came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Imagine if that was the description today 
Now, some of you picked out a phrase or two and went, what? Like everybody had everything in common. And they gave, sold stuff so they could give to others. Understand what was being stated is, it was not a communal thing, it was a community. Meaning that as needs arose, people met needs. They didn't invent them. They met them. As there were legitimate needs and they shared together in pain, they shared together in joy. They shared together in awe, which, by the way, when it says that all of them were in awe, another translation says fear. Because anything that's awesome is also a bit fearsome. Ever seen the Grand Canyon? Niagara Falls? Indiana basketball? Just But they were in awe. And the thing they were most in awe about is watching people who were their neighbors. Who were fully committed to following and being like Jesus Christ. So whatever your definition of imagine if. It should start with a group who's fully committed to following and becoming more like Jesus Christ. Because that needs to be our goal. That needs to be the picture of the church. So let me review a little bit from last week. That we talked about that we are disciples of Christ. If you claim to follow Jesus, you're to be a disciple of his. But we're also part of a larger body. Not just this local body, but a larger body of our denomination, but even larger than that. We're a part of the church worldwide, the church that believes in Jesus Christ and his word. Anyone who is believing in that, we are brothers and sisters of. And we seek to be connected locally, regionally, globally. Everything we do personally and corporately is to be about Jesus. Not about us, not our name, not our denomination, but about Jesus. Now, we are a part of a denomination, and we're part of a denomination, as we looked at last week, that's almost all around the world. As our founding leader said, the, church, the sun never sets on the church of the Nazarene, and I know it never sets on the general church who follows Jesus Christ. And we give and serve locally. We're a part of a district. Ours is called Northwest Illinois District. And we're a part of this to make disciples of all nations. And we need to seek, and this should be a description of us, to seek to live out our faith and then share it with everyone. Now, part of living it out is sharing, and part of sharing is as we live it out. It's to be as we go in the Great Commission that's given in Matthew 28. It is as you go, do these things. Now, the scripture we used last week, I want to come back to again. It's in Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Those of you that need the outline filled out can now breathe. From the English Standard Version, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And it's interesting, just time out right there, that what they were saying is, well, Jesus seems like one of these who went before. It's kind of like he reminds me of, or this is what I heard about. And I think some even thought he was a reincarnation of one of those. But then Jesus asks the really important question. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. He's giving him a new name in this point. And on this rock, the statement of his faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys, keys of, of the, the kingdom, kingdom of, of heaven, heaven and, and whatever, whatever you bind on earth will be bound uh, on earth. Whatever, excuse me, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. That he had not revealed that to everyone yet. We're not under that obligation to stay quiet. In fact, we're under an opposite obligation. We're supposed to be loud and noisy about it. I think some of you are acting as if we're still under this obligation. Don't say anything. No, it's the exact opposite. It's to be about everything we do and who we are. And I want you to recognize something. Again, this is free, not on your outline. When Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. You know, the flesh and blood hadn't revealed it to you, but my father. And he said, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, the statement of his faith. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We too often... Give Satan too much credit. He is powerful. He messes with a lot of stuff. But we forget that the truth is, he is nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ. And that picture says that hell is trying to keep us from taking people from them. I told you, I think uh, the week after our general assembly of the Church of the Nazarene, I saw a t-shirt that said, hell lost another one. I didn't know till this week that's actually part of a song. Which I go, I love that song already and haven't even heard it. I love that phrase. That statement that hell lost another one. I think that's right out of the scripture. That he said, if you're following me, if you are following this faith, the statement that Peter gave that Jesus Christ is the one said then, whatever hell wants to do cannot stand against you. And in fact, hell cannot stop you from getting another one. Rescuing more. That needs to be a description of who we are. Willing to charge the gates of hell with a water pistol. Because we got the one who created it all on our side. So why does this matter? What difference does all this make? Well, it matters because each person's eternal 
address is at stake. When we moved here nearly three years ago, we had to do the annoying process of doing all the change of address stuff to everything that we wanted to have forwarded to us, and we didn't to the stuff we didn't. But invariably, there was some stuff we forgot. Now, some stuff got forwarded. The post office, you know, does their thing for so many months. And some stuff, the pastor who followed us in Canton said, hey, this came, and I'm pretty sure it's for you, not for me, and, you know, sent it to us. And some stuff just got lost somewhere. Have you ever thought about the fact that what we're doing is about helping people do a change of address for eternity? Because there's going to be one of two addresses. It's either whatever your street is in hell or wherever your mansion is in heaven. And what we're to be about is to help people change their address. To go up, not down. To have them have that and to know eternally where they will be. It matters because Jesus said it does. He said it right there in that passage we read, and it's evidenced in the other passage I read out of Acts chapter 2. He said this matters. People's lives matter. Their souls matter. It's why he went to the cross. That's why he said in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, that this is the commission we've been given. It's why he said in Acts 1.8, now that the Holy Spirit has come, you're to do this. Be my witnesses. It matters because Jesus said it does. And thirdly, it matters because whether you realize it or not, you have a call on your life. Every one of us has a call on our life. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, you have a call. You have been commissioned, called and commissioned by God. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will be, not you might be, you could be, you could check it out. You will be my witnesses. We have a call on our life, each of us individually. We have a general call, all of us, to reach the nations. And we have a specific call on how we're going to do that. And it's not the same for all of us. But you have a call on your life. You matter in God's kingdom. I love this definition of the church from the Beacon Dictionary of Theology. It says the church must be in the world, but not of it. Ethically, it should constitute a community apart, yet socially a community involved and concerned. In other words, right out of Scripture, we're to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus didn't come in and call his 12 into a little um, fort to keep everybody else out. Instead, he got his 12 and he said, now let's go. And then he got the next group and said, let's go. And he got the next group and said, let's go. And when he left to go back to heaven, he said, now all of you go. As you go, where you go, how you go, whenever you go, we're to be the church. We are not to look like the world in how all the actions of the world are, but we're to be in the world so we can influence the world. Right now, 
there's a thermostat in the parsonage that we live in at home that's set for a certain temperature. But it has nothing to do with the temperature in this building. Because it's not in this building. And sometimes we act as if where we are, we can impact something where we don't go. And we come together as a church and we go, we did great in here. And then we go out and forget about it till the next time we come together. That's not impacting or influencing. We got to make connection. We got to bump into. We have to work alongside. We have to talk to people to be able to influence them. Yes, electronically, there's a lot of stuff. And technologically now where we can impact from long distance and we can impact long distance by how we give so that others can go. We know that personally in our family. But we have to make contact. Somebody has to make connection for there to be that influence that we are called to do. Now on your outline are, are six things from the Church of the Nazarene, our denomination, we have what we call 16 articles of faith, kind of the foundation things of belief. And I'm at least going to mention them to you uh, this morning, and we'll explain a couple of them. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll put some other things out. But from these articles of faith, the first one that's listed is, we believe in a triune God. It means three in one. We believe in what's called the Trinity. One God, the creator of all things, who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy Spirit. It's not like anything else in nature, and it's sometimes made fun of by others going, you know, that makes no sense. You believe in some mythical thing. And yet, the reality is, God isn't like anything else in nature because he created nature. And somehow there is God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are equally together while also operating in separate roles quite often. We believe in that, that there is truth, and Scripture has many instances of it, and I have a couple listed there. I think they're, they're listed there, and I've got dozens more if you, if you are interested and want to to know more about that. Secondly, we believe in Jesus Christ. If we believe in the Trinity, we obviously believe in Christ and we believe in his role separately even from the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ who is fully God and yet when he came to earth was fully man. But he became like us. He got connected to bring about salvation and he took our place according to to the makeup of God being holy, sin couldn't be tolerated. And so in the Old Testament, they were always bringing animals in and shedding the blood of animals for the remission or forgiveness of their sins. The problem was it didn't last. So they had to come back again and again and again. So God sent a solution through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and died in our place once for all. Now, everyone individually has to accept this for themselves, but the price has already been paid. Jesus Christ, 
God's Son, part of the Trinity who came to provide for our salvation. We also believe in the third of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 and 2 show and describe some of what took place when the Holy Spirit came upon. And the interesting thing is the Holy Spirit is not just a New Testament issue. There are so many instances through the Old Testament where Holy Spirit is referenced and referred to. And the Spirit came on in individual situations. But at this point, in what is known as the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to be with us. And Jesus said, when I go, I'm sending one called alongside. One who is called to be with us and in us, bringing salvation, but empowering us to do what we've been called to do. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the other articles we'll look at later is the idea of sanctification, which is through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through us. And that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not something mystical at all. In fact, it's so powerful and personal. But we believe in the Holy Spirit that he's active today and needs to be active in us. And we know these things because we also believe, and there is so much evidence of this, that the scriptures, the Bible, is God's word. The Holy Scriptures. The interesting thing is, if you do any research about the Bible, you find out that through the centuries there have been those who have tried to disprove it. And yet, to their dismay, it keeps coming up as true. Even so many of the historical things that people have said, no way, that's too far-fetched, the ark and all kinds of other stuff. And yet, they keep finding stuff that goes, oh, something like that happened. It's because the word is true. The word as it was given. Do we mess up the interpretation sometimes? <laughs> Absolutely. But God's word is true. That's why I encourage you so much to be in the word. Check what I say against the word. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word. Make sure it's his words. If it's mine, dismiss them, flush them. But if it's his, hold on to it and live it. We need to be in the word. We believe the Bible is the word of God, giving us everything we need to know on how to be saved and how to follow God. Everything we need to know. Does it give us everything we would like to know? No. Because all of us have certain things we go, well, I'd like to know. Sometimes it's in there and sometimes it's not. As far as specifically. I don't know why sometimes when we pray like we did this morning, it gets answered the way we want. And sometimes it doesn't. I know it's God's discretion. I just don't always understand his discretion. But I still believe and trust him. Because over and over at times when that which I hoped for didn't happen, I have learned later it was so much better his way than what I had hoped for. It's like the parent with the child, especially the young child, well, teenagers, on some stuff they want, gotta have. And a parent who's being a parent, 
That means not just giving in to be their friend. Ouch. Will say no sometimes to stuff they want because it's not what's best or it's not the right time. Later you look back and go, oh, thought of that a whole bunch this week. I don't know why the Lord was just flooding this to my mind from my parents and some stuff. And I, I know it's surprising, but sometimes I ask for stuff and I was wrong. I know you're surprised by that, but there were some of those moments. And I was fortunate to have parents who parented me. They didn't always agree with me, which was stunning especially at the time. But so many of those things I can look at now and go, oh. God, through his word and the power of his Holy Spirit, through what he's done and how we're to follow, gives us what we need. We believe in sin. We don't like it, but we believe in it. There are really two kinds, original and personal Original sin, that man is born into sin because of Adam and Eve. Now, you can go ahead and not waste any time blaming them. Because if it wouldn't have been them, it would have been the next generation. Because look at Cain and Abel and on and on it goes. But there's an original sin that all have sinned, it says in Romans, and have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We are born into sin. You don't have to teach a child to lose their temper. They generally learn that. In fact, you sometimes go, who taught them that? Well, just part of their original nature. That's part of original sin. Now, you know, I'm not saying that your baby or grandchild you know, ever did that kind of stuff, but we are born into sin. But there is also personal sin that we make choices of when we reach the age of accountability, whatever that is for each of us, where we choose things we know to be wrong and we do it anyway. I was going to do a show of, show of hands, but I was afraid somebody wouldn't actually hear me and not raise their hand and we'd all go, ah! so I didn't do that. Original and personal, we believe in that. I also believe... That, that we've quit, quit talking, talking about, about it as much as we should. It's understandable because I don't want you talking about my sin. sin. Have you ever noticed that we have a tendency to be harder on sins we don't struggle with? We just can't believe they're doing that. That's always one we don't have trouble with. The others, we go, well, that's understandable. But sin is sin. But God has provided a way for forgiveness of those sins and a way for salvation. The last one describes that as atonement. It's that we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that by trusting in his death and his resurrection, we can be restored to a right relationship to God. That though it was broken, God provided a healing, a bridge to cross over that. And the atonement is not just a covering of sin, but a cleansing of sin. It is not putting a band-aid on something. When you put a band-aid on it, I can't see the cut. But if we pull the band-aid off, the cut's still there because it has not healed. 
But once a scar, a injury, a surgery has been healed, new skin develops, and I can no longer see the energy, excuse me, injury, but I can see the new life, the new skin. That's the same thing. That's what atonement is. That now when God looks at us, we are covered by the blood of Christ when we accept it, but it is not just a covering over and a hiding of our sin. It is a cleansing and forgiveness of it. So now what? What difference does it make? Number one, you need to choose to believe for yourself. You have to choose what you believe. It's sometimes really easy just to go along. And unfortunately, too many of us do that. Where we don't really know what we believe, we just go, well, yeah, what they said. And that's part of the purpose and motivation and prayer behind these messages. Is that you'll know what you're choosing to believe. And secondly, once you make your choice, you've got to live your choice. We have a lot of people who try to choose without doing. In our men's prayer breakfast, yesterday we looked at the fact that we're you know, not just to be listeners of the word, but doers of it. And to listen to it and not do it is foolish. I think too many times we nod that we believe, and then we get up and go live opposite. We need to live out what we've chosen to believe. And then lastly, yes, I'm sharing it again. You must share it. You've got to share what you believe by how you live as well as what you say, opportunities that God gives you. Here's a great one for back to church. But we need to understand what we've chosen and each of us must choose for ourselves. I plead on your behalf all the time that you make that choice. That if you have, that you'll be strong in what you've chosen and what you believe. And that if you haven't, that God's Holy Spirit will convict you of the need for that and that you would be embraced and embrace his love and forgiveness for you personally. So let me ask you in closing, what do you believe? And then what will you do with what you claim to believe? What you believe matters. And what you do with it really matters. Jesus, thank you for this day, for this moment, for this opportunity to look in your word and get a picture of what you want us to be as individuals and as a collective body called the church. This church and way beyond here. Lord, may you speak to each heart till we answer that question. What do we believe? And Lord, if we're making a claim that we believe you and in you. Lord, help us to check how we're living it out. To make sure that what we're living matches what we're claiming. Lord, I thank you for so many who are following you. May this encourage and strengthen them in their faith and in what they believe. And Lord, for others, I pray that it would draw them to your forgiveness and salvation. Guide us as we go to know what we believe and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.